My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. This is the History of Film, episode 14A, Inside the Nickelodeon. Hello, and welcome to the supplementary episode of The History of Film. In today's episode, we'll cover the earliest experience of watching movies in dedicated movie theaters. It would be an experience which would seem at once familiar and totally foreign to modern movie-going audiences. While doing so, we will also cover the impact these early movie houses had on the film industry, and see how the Nickelodeon's influence can be felt in modern exhibition centers. Now, as fun as it would be for me as a writer to simply compare and contrast turn-of-the-century Nickelodeons to the Portland AMC, it wouldn't be very helpful for you as an audience. So I will indulge myself only in saying that if cell phones existed in 1905, Nickelodeon owners wouldn't likely have asked you to turn them off. Now, let's start with a primary source, something I don't use as often as I would like in the creation of this show. What I'm about to read comes from a journalist writing for the Saturday Evening Post named Joseph Patterson. At the very end of it, Patterson describes what he observes to be the demographics of people who come to Nickelodeons. His descriptions are, at the very least, borderline problematic, but will become more important later in the show as we look at the place Nickelodeons had in generally less privileged communities and how historians have re-examined that. The account is published in Eric Rhodes' A History of the Cinema from its Origins to 1970 and was originally printed in 1907. Quote, Incredible as it may seem, over two million people, on the average, attend the Nickelodeons every day of the year, and a third of these are children. The Nickelodeon is usually a tiny theater containing 199 seats, 12 to 18 performances a day, seven days a week. Its walls are painted red. The seats are ordinary kitchen chairs, not fastened. The only break in the red color scheme is made by half a dozen signs in black and white. No smoking, hats off, and sometimes, but not always, stay as long as you like. The last year, or the year before, it was probably a second-hand clothier's, a pawn shop, or a cigar store. Now the counter has been ripped out, there's a barker somewhere up in the air, thundering down noise on the passers-by, and the little store has been converted into a theater-let. Not a theater, mind you, for theaters must take out a theatrical license at $500 a year. Theaters seat 200 or more people. Nickelodeons seat 199 and take out amusement licenses. For some reason, young women from 16 to 30 years old are rarely in evidence, but many middle-aged women and old women are steady patrons, who never, when a new film is to be shown, miss the opening. In cosmopolitan city districts, the foreigners attend in larger proportions than the English speakers. As might be expected, the Latin races patronize the show more consistently than Jews, Irish, or Americans. Sailors of all races are devotees. Okay, there's a lot to look at in just that account, and I think it's a really good starting point for learning about Nickelodeons. So, let's break it up into sections and use these new sections as a way to start talking about this. First, let's look at what it takes to start a Nickelodeon as a business. Then we'll talk about the actual experience of watching movies in one. After that, we will talk about the demographics of the Nickelodeon before finally describing the legacy that these theaterlets had and how it's felt in movie theaters today. 
I used a lot of sources when writing this week's episode, but probably the most helpful were At the Picture Show, Small Town Audiences, and the Creation of Movie Fan Culture by Catherine Fuller, and the beginning chapters of The Speed of Sound, Hollywood and the Talkie Revolution by Scott Eyman. So, with a plan laid out and major sources listed, let's begin. As the Saturday Evening Post quotation we just read points out, a Nickelodeon was not a purpose-built theater, but instead a converted storefront, a second-hand clothiers, a pawn shop, or a cigar store, for example. These were small affairs taken on by individuals or groups of individuals, community members, and families. Benjamin B. Hampton's 1931 book, A History of the Movies, describes people from poor circumstances pooling their money together to make a Nickelodeon. It would cost at least a few hundred dollars, so often one person would sell their shop or quit their wage job and take on business partners to cover the initial expenses of rent, purchasing a projector and chairs, buying a piano, and leasing films. All kinds of people did this, including immigrants to the United States and other non-native English speakers, or people who didn't speak English at all. Another group of people who were important to the creation and propagation of Nickelodeons were families. Hampton describes a generalized scenario in which a father would manage the theater, a mother would sell tickets, the daughter would take tickets at the door, and a son would crank the projector for the movies. While I'm sure far from idyllic for the children working, keeping the money in the family made good business sense for a lot of people. There were, of course, other people and groups of people running Nickelodeons at the time. After all, there were 10,000 of them by 1910, but I'm focusing on these for two reasons. The first is to point out that the exhibition of film, at least at the very first, was fairly democratic, mostly small businesses owned by people of many economic and ethnic backgrounds. The second is, there were companies that you've probably heard of that got their start in Nickelodeons, and they're great examples of what we just described. They were founded by Adolf Zukor and the Warner family. Adolf Zukor was a Hungarian orphan who immigrated to the United States at the age of 16. He worked in a fur shop in New York before moving to Chicago in 1892 and opening his own fur business. In 1900, Zukor moved back to New York and opened a penny arcade, a place where people could view the peep show films we talked about back in episodes 3 and 4, with the help of several investors. It's hard to nail down exact dates, but it's pretty clear that Zukor and his partners opened their arcade in 1903 at the latest, and within a few years converted their penny arcade into a Nickelodeon. Zukor wasn't poor when he began his business of film exhibition, but he is a great example of Nickelodeon owners from various professions working with partners and entering a totally new business. This business proved to be profitable, and Zukor teamed up with another businessman named Marcus Lowe, who was himself an Austrian immigrant, and opened chains of Nickelodeons. These two people will have a much larger place in film history later, as Zukor founded what would become Paramount Pictures, and Lowe was a founding triumvir of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The Warner family had a similar story, working together in various businesses before opening a chain of Nickelodeons. Initially far from wealthy, the tale is told that they borrowed chairs from the local undertaker for one of their theaters, meaning that whenever there was a funeral in town, their Nickelodeon was standing room only. Much like Zukor, they eventually moved their business into the realm of film production. Unsurprisingly, they called their company Warner Brothers, and it is still a major player in film today. 
These two stories shine a light on some of the most famous examples of how immigrants to the United States and families working together, often both as in the case of the parents of the Warner Brothers, made careers out of running Nickelodeons. True, their transition to production and eventual enormous success makes them outliers for sure, but it also serves to show that once the film business began to take on a more rigid shape, it was actually former Nickelodeon owners who had head seats at several of the giant production studios. This makes the importance of Nickelodeons as a business matter more in film history far longer than Nickelodeons actually existed. As for Nickelodeon theaters themselves, they had certain common characteristics that contributed to their Nickelodeon-ness, just as much as the movies that were played there. The converted storefronts that became Nickelodeons didn't stay looking like storefronts for long. For one thing, they would have, for the time, a shocking amount of electric light. As Fuller puts it, bare white incandescent light bulbs were installed across the small facades of most Nickelodeons. Light bulbs outlining doorways and arches and spelling out the theater's name were arranged in a celebration of the still intriguing technology of electricity. This would have been especially amazing in American small towns, which during the Nickelodeon era were largely unlit. These theaters must have seemed truly wondrous, ablaze with white light amidst a world of darkness. The outer walls of the theater would often be garishly decorated and adorned with posters that perhaps oversold the quality of the films the Nickelodeons were showing. Remember, the producer's goal at this time was quantity, not quality. Nickelodeon exteriors were also initially full of sound, as theater owners blasted phonograph or mechanical piano music into the streets, or even hired barkers of the step-right-up fashion to announce the virtues of the movies being presented. All of this contributed to the growing sense of movies and movie houses being centers of glamour, pleasure, and escapism that would come to define the next period in American cinema. As for actually watching movies in these theaters, the experience was, shall we say, informal. Because there was such a low entrance fee, the relatively uncomfortable chairs could be packed with people at any given moment, many of them children. The shows, as you know, were a repeating program of short films. The expectation of arriving on time to the movies didn't really begin until the 1960s, and it would be easy to show up in the middle of a set, watch the whole program through, to the point that they entered at, if they even did that, and then leave. As the Patterson quote from the beginning of the episode said, Nickelodeons were stay-as-long-as-you-like affairs, some even having signs encouraging patrons to get their fill of the flickers all day if they wanted to. In order to make the image projected in the small auditorium bright and sharp enough to be enjoyed by audiences, owners would keep their auditoriums, if you could call them that, in utter darkness, with the only light in the entire place streaming from the projector. If you go to a movie theater today, there will be tiny lights that will help the audience move through the aisles and find their seats. This was not the case in Nickelodeons, and stumbling and groping through the darkness to find one's seat was the order of the day. This darkness also had a side effect, as Nickelodeons became a go-to location for young lovers seeking a bit of public privacy. Moviegoers were largely, completely anonymous, and people took advantage of it. So began the grand tradition of couples kissing in the back of movie theaters, which still exists today, as anyone who has ever worked at a movie theater will tell you. This secondary use of Nickelodeons was so popular that there was even a song written about it by the same guy who wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Let's go into a pit. 
I love it so. On the square there ain't anywhere I would rather go. There's where every girl and her beau always go to spoon, you know. So let's go into a picture show for a good old time. Mary told him of the wonders within and the funny side. The house is so dark when you start into spark and no fear of light. Talk about moonlight in there, you'll find moonlight. You have your sweetheart by your side. You hope no one sees you, I know that will please you. Then let's hurry in, Johnny cried. Let's go into a picture show, for I love it so. On the square there ain't anywhere I would rather go. There's where every girl and her beau always go to spoon, you know. So let's go into a picture show for a good old time. But Nickelodeon's, at least from what I have read, were not always the most romantic locations. These small theaters would often be packed full, teeming with human life, poorly ventilated, and oppressively hot. As such, the odor of all of these people together could be quite strong. Scott Iman wrote that the Eagle Theater in New York would have a person spray sickly sweet perfume up and down the theater in an attempt to fight off the rank smell of it all. Nickelodeons were also loud. Before the age of prestigious high-class movie theaters, and especially before characters on screen had any dialogue to be listened to, movie viewing could be rambunctious. There would be a loud projector clicking in the back of the room, which would ideally be drowned out by a musical instrument in the front. While in the 1920s this could be a full orchestra or a massive pipe organ, in these early theaters it was often an upright piano, being played by musicians of various skill levels, or even a completely mechanically operated one. Theater employees would sometimes walk through the areas of the auditorium where people weren't seated, and sell peanuts, calling them out like a hot dog salesman at a baseball game. Now, I can't find out where I read this, but somewhere in the pile of books I used to write these episodes, there was a wonderful description of children commonly reading the inner titles of movies out loud to each other or to their parents, and other parents calling out for their children when it was time for them to leave the show, as they'd already stayed for several showings of the program. Because the movies had not yet acquired a culture of respectful silence from audience members, there was also, no doubt, many loud conversations in Nickelodeons about stocks, weather, or relationships. And of course, there would be all of the talking to the screen and audible audience reaction we've come to expect in movie theaters to this day. In addition to all of that noise, there was also, in a few instances, talking Nickelodeons. By which I mean there were actors paid to stand behind the screen and improvise dialogue whenever the characters on screen spoke. Foster writes that this practice was actually quite popular for a while, and some exhibitors found that it made their theaters quite popular too. 
One story from Ayman's book recounts an actor who was a native Yiddish speaker working as a voice for an English-speaking Nickelodeon. During an exciting scene in a Western, he slipped from speaking English to his native language, much to the dismay of the English-speaking audience. Taking into account all of the different kinds of noises that were in Nickelodeon's, it seems to me that these early silent films may have been louder than many movies are today. This would have been tedious in its way, but I can't escape the idea that the energy of it all must have been intoxicating. If any of you have ever been into a packed movie theater for an exciting film, you'll know what I mean. Movies, especially in the days before home viewing was possible in any meaningful way for virtually anyone, were a shared experience, and looking at it that way takes the edge off of watching them in a hot, smelly, rambunctious environment. But let's say you, for some unknown reason, didn't want to watch movies in a hot, smelly, rambunctious environment. Well, for most people, the answer was initially to keep dreaming, but this quickly changed. Benjamin Hampton, writing in the 1930s, recounted the story of a man in Utah who loved movies and felt that he could charge 10 cents instead of the usual nickel if he hired better musicians and had proper ventilation in his movie theater. People apparently scoffed at the notion, claiming that no one would ever be willing to pay more than a nickel for such low entertainment as cinema. Still, the intrepid entrepreneur, undaunted by naysayers, opened his 10-cent movie theater and made buckets of money. According to Hampton, this man from Utah was the first to prove that moviegoers were willing to pay a little bit more for a better experience at the movies. Like many stories from 1930s American history books, this one strikes me as a bit dubious, a near-mythological explanation or origin for economic factors that would lead to larger movie theaters. While I'm not sure of the historical accuracy of this account, I share it because of the principle behind it. The Nickelodeon experience would not last long as independent theaters became chains of theaters and were eventually supplanted by increasingly decadent movie houses. By 1915, at least one movie would open up at a staggering price of $2 a ticket. That's a shocking increase of 3,900% in just 10 years, a prospect that any corporate CEO would sell at least a leg and a child for. Movies were changing quickly and the theaters they were being watched in, and what people paid for them, reflected that. Even in the early Nickelodeon era, as our friend from Utah shows us, this was always true. And so, who went to Nickelodeons? That's a broad question that leads to some complicated answers. If you read any old film history books, like some of the ones I've used to actually write this episode, that answer initially seems clear. According to these, the people who came to movies were, initially, poor immigrants and roustabouts, the uneducated and uncouth masses who neither had the money nor sophistication for stage theater. These people lived in the various ethnic neighborhoods of major East Coast cities and poured into Nickelodeons by the tens of thousands. This way of thinking and writing about Nickelodeons and the people who attended them was accepted as a matter of course in film history for decades. To illustrate this, I'm going to read a quote from Louis Jacobs, whose 1939 book, The Rise of the American Film, is about as close to a classic in American film history as I'm aware of. He wrote, Movies gave the newcomers, particularly, a respect for American law and order, and an understanding of civic organization, pride in citizenship, and the American commonwealth. Movies acquainted them with current happenings at home and abroad, 
Because the uncritical moviegoers were deeply impressed by what they saw in the photographs and accepted them as the real thing, the movies were powerful and persuasive. More vividly than any other single agency, they revealed the social topography of America to the immigrant, to the poor, and to the country folk. Obviously, this characterization of vast swaths of people as gullible children ready to treat what they saw on the screen as reality itself is untrue, reductive, and hurtful, but it was broadly accepted by many of what we might call mainstream film historians for large swaths of time. If you want a more real answer to the question of who went to Nickelodeons, you will have to embrace more complexity and more nuance. Let's start with the cities, whose populations and locations are indelibly connected with the current imagination of moviegoing at the turn of the 20th century. This connection is not undeserved. By 1910, there were 300 Nickelodeons in Manhattan alone. I did a quick Google Maps search for movie theaters in Manhattan, and there are 20 today. Clearly, in the Nickelodeon era, movie theaters and the movies that were shown in them were important and prolific in urban centers. It's also fair to say that these movie houses did cater to the poor, as the cost of admission was a meager five cents, and that there were movie theaters that catered to various ethnic groups. That is to be expected and is a matter of historical fact. But to say that only poor people and immigrants went to Nickelodeons is clearly untrue. As many historians have pointed out, Nickelodeons in New York did not all open in economically poor or immigrant-heavy areas. In fact, only a third of them did. The majority of Nickelodeons were in middle-class neighborhoods, with relatively fewer immigrants and non-white residents. This inclusion of majority and minority ethnic groups and broader economic inclusion makes a certain amount of intuitive sense. After all, if middle-class and ethnic-majority people weren't watching movies in 1910, why were so many of them ready to watch movies in 1915 and beyond into the high-silent era of motion pictures? And as for the quote from the beginning of the episode, in which the writer states that there were virtually no young women in the audiences of Nickelodeons, that may have had some truth to it, as boys and men have traditionally had the lion's share of social and political freedom, but there had to be some young women in theaters, or they couldn't have gained their reputation for hiding canoodling girls and boys. In addition, the soon-to-appear film fan magazines would cater almost exclusively to young women. So, the question of who went to Nickelodeons in cities is, of course, complicated, and seems to be a whole lot of people, maybe pretty much everyone. Most Americans in the Nickelodeon era, however, did not live in cities, and so, going by sheer numbers alone, most Nickelodeons didn't either. In fact, by 1910, of the estimated 10,000 Nickelodeons, 7,000 of them were in small towns. While proportionally large cities had more theaters in them, small-town theaters were important places of exhibition that movies thrived in. These theaters served populations of farmers whose families had long lived in the United States. This adds another group of people to our incredibly vast whole lot of people and demographics of people who went to see movies. But we have to add a caveat to that. A whole lot of people and groups of people went to see Nickelodeon features. Except people who were prevented from doing so. Catherine Fuller writes that because of many factors, the sheer number of movie theaters in the American South were less than one might expect. 
These include less dense population centers, which would make it harder for movie theaters to thrive in a specific community, and increased poverty, which would make even spending a nickel per ticket a larger expense. Most importantly, though, was the blatant institutional racism, especially segregation and Jim Crow laws. Laws in the South prevented any commingling of black and white people in houses of entertainment, and so Nickelodeons could not and would not open their doors to black people, who represented sizable populational majorities in some southern towns. This racism prevented Nickelodeons from having the success they enjoyed in the North. Eventually, segregated or all-black Nickelodeons would be created, but not very many of them. By 1930, in the proper golden age of Hollywood, there would only be 280 segregated movie houses across the entire American South, most of them owned by white men, and often showing only worn-out prints of unimpressive or old films. So lots of people and groups of people didn't get to go see movies, especially those people who were intentionally, systemically prevented from doing so. That said, where they did eventually exist, black movie theaters would often become important to the communities that patroned them, and were centers of entertainment and connection. Soon, black filmmakers began making movies without the support of the major movie studios of the day for those communities. We will talk about them in future episodes, because they have amazing stories and they made some incredible films. It wasn't only black communities that were kept out of Nickelodeons. Despite the Saturday Evening Post quote from the beginning of the show saying that the Latin races were abundant in theaters of the American Northeast, Latinx people were discouraged from attending movies with whites in Texas and so opened their own movie theaters specifically for their communities, with Spanish subtitles below English intertitles for projected films. Theater chain owners would own Nickelodeons on both sides of the Mexico and United States border, and films from the U.S. sold well in both areas. In addition to racial segregation, many women in small towns of the American South and Midwest were largely absent from movie theaters. Cultural stigmas prevented women from seeking out what was perceived as worldly or self-indulgent entertainment, and the act of entering and exiting the movies, at the very least, was a public transgression. It wasn't a transgression that could be overlooked because it was unseen. This cultural stigma prevented women, even from majority ethnicities, from attending movie shows, or even subscribing to women's magazines or catalogs. In addition, many women in small towns had hardly any leisure time at all, and so when women could go to town, it was usually for planned utilitarian reasons. This would eventually change in some degree, but in the Nickelodeon era, Nickelodeons were largely for white men, and that's all there was to it. So, what we are left with after all of that is a really complicated picture of Nickelodeons in large cities serving both poor and middle-class people, different ethnic groups and specific areas, men, women, and children. We also see Nickelodeons in the American Midwest and South serving white boys and men, but largely or completely excluding women and people of color, who in some cases formed their own theaters in response to that exclusion when possible. The demographics and habits of moviegoing in this era are complex, and resist simple generalizations while at the same time bearing record of institutional and cultural racism and sexism. So there's the answer, I guess? The big takeaway for how the Nickelodeon affects film history is largely the legacy of it that is still felt today. It was the evolutionary forefather of modern movie theaters, 
and provided a wide enough market for movies to increase in popularity, quality, and cultural saturation as people demanded more and higher quality films. Their garish lights and over-the-top decorations and posters paved the way for the massive and luxurious movie palaces that would become so famous as the golden age of silent film began to come into being. And they ended. The Nickelodeon as such was a historic flash in the pan, as movie studios began to build and buy theaters to make massive chains that would become the dominant force of movie exhibition. Still, even though the era of the Nickelodeon ended by 1920, it was the nickels and dimes that flowed up from these independent theaters which movie studios fought for. And that is what we will talk about next week, as Carl Lemley fights to secure a place for his films in Nickelodeons, and takes on the Hydra that was the Motion Picture Patents Company. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Film. My favorite fact that didn't make it into the show this week was some of the tactics that Nickelodeon owners used to try to maximize their profits. This included making illegal dupes of films, which was making a negative of the positive film that they borrow and then showing or reselling that negative. Which, more power to them. Thomas Edison was the worst. And hiring kids to bicycle prints of films to various theaters thus not having to pay rental fees for more than one theater that somebody owned. You can see a great example of that in Cinema Paradiso. If you'd like to email me, you can contact me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com, and you can visit the show's website, historyoffilmpodcast.com, to see information that will help you understand and learn more about the things that we talk about in each episode. If you would like to support the show, the best way you can do that is by leaving a review wherever you listen, and by telling your friends about it. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for another exciting episode of the History of Film. <laughs>